0: I am willing to wager £20,000, that I will make a tour of the world in 80 days or less. Do you accept? Accept, I accept. Um, I accept. The train leaves for Dover this evening. Good evening, gentlemen. Hello everyone and welcome to Season 6 of 80 Days and Exploration Podcast. It's been a while, due to life getting in the way more than once, for more than one of us. But now we're back and we've got a great slate of episodes lined up for you. Today's episode, as usual, is brought to you by three history and geography nerds in an internet power balloon. And this podcast is dedicated to discussing little known countries, territories, settlements and cities from around the world. My name is Luke Kelly. I'm broadcasting from Dublin, Ireland, and joining me today are... Mark Boyle in Syria in the UK,
1: and Joe Byrne in Galway, Ireland.
0: And in this episode we'll be talking about Salem, Massachusetts, which has a strong historical connection to the famous witch trials that took place there in the 1690s. Salem lies on Massachusetts Bay between Salem Harbour and Beverly Harbour, just alongside the Danvers River, which feeds into the harbour. It's around 20 miles or 35 kilometres north of Boston, And the witch trials took place in a small settlement just outside of Salem proper, then known as Salem Village, but later renamed Danvers. And we'll likely touch on both of those locations throughout today's episode. Today, Salem has a population of around 44,000, while Danvers is home to around 28,000 people. The area has long been occupied by the indigenous Native American tribe, the Massachusetts, before the arrival of Puritan settlers from England in the 1630s. And for obvious reasons... Salem today is one of the most popular destinations in the U.S. to celebrate Halloween, attracting over half a million visitors every year. First off, let's kick off with a bit of foreshadowing. Mark, uh, do you want to tell us something that you're looking forward to talking about this episode?
2: I'm interested in uh, adding to, to my list of one currently, uh, Terrible Americans, uh, and uh, right. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about uh, a sort of a reverse Mount Rushmore. Uh, I'm, I'm still ah. still working the concept out, but I've got at least two <laughs> names as of today.
0: It sounds like a t-shirt idea to me, uh, if ever there was one. And Joe, what about yourself?
1: A simple one, a really, really, really old tree probably come back to it at the end it's going that's to be there for most of our story um okay. but that's quite on brand and, joe that's yeah quite on brand and uh <laughs> oh, 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 i'm also excited about the number of people called nathaniel we're going to talk mm. about it's it's an above average number of people called nathaniel
2: i think we each get All a nathaniel right. i
1: think yeah yeah, yeah. it's nice and uh, very you know puritan to be puritaning
0: okay i am looking forward to talking about a uh particularly gnarly uh form of tree torture oh. that was used during the witch trials uh i mean right. we're aiming to have this episode sometime around halloween so um you know we gotta have something it's something pretty gruesome in there it's a
2: spookisode yeah. does that yeah does that for amazing? sure yeah. yeah
0: maybe um no cannibalism uh from what from, <laughs> no, from my <laughs> section remarkably anyway, but, uh
1: no none. Yeah.
0: but there's some there's some pretty gruesome stuff in here so just trying to uh And just largely, uh, like it's it
1: it, it's a lot of injustice as well, like Mm. (laughs) uh, rather than spookiness,
2: which social injustice
0: is pure nightmare Mm. fuel for our listeners. I I
2: think when we kind of conceived of the uh, Salem episode for Halloween thing, you know, witches spooky, sure, and and then kind of the the more we read into it, like witches don't exist, just people falsely (laughs) accused, sad. Oh no, oh no, yeah.
1: Yeah. Oh, it's a way to exclude the socially excluded more.
2: Mm. Yeah, cool. We we needed another tool. I mean, and
0: it, it, it seems to have turned into a real driver of tourism, uh, from what I can tell.
2: Very tastefully, I'm sure. Based on my research, <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. So, good stuff. All right, so let's kick off with some early history. Joe, you want to start us off with some early history of uh, Salem?
1: I do indeed. So... You know, early history here is going to be a little bit broader than just Salem. It's going to be more sort of the northeast of what's now the US is we're going to focus on. Then zooming yeah. in as we get closer to having written documents about individual people.
0: Salem didn't exist as a concept. Yeah, exactly. Until, um,
1: yeah, it's a settler town, so it, it it wasn't a thing. Um, a really useful resource that I would heartily recommend people look at. And we'll put it in the show notes. Is a project from Salem State University. Uh, where they, it seems to be an ongoing project curated by Jessica Cook and Hannah Drew, which is kind of a, I don't know if you've heard of these ideas of sort of land acknowledgements that a lot of public institutions in North America are starting to do, where they sort of go, we recognise that this university is built on land, the traditional land of, you know, whatever people Mm -hmm. used to be dispossessed from there. They've kind of gone one step further and said, that's all well and good, but we're going to create a, a living history timeline of Indigenous life in what they call Dawnland, uh, so the northeast of the North American continent. I don't know how widespread that name is, but it's kind of poetic and nice because the sun rises in the east. So they start off with the all land is indigenous land as their opening statement. Uh, and That's quite a strong starting point. Mm-hmm. And then uh, lead us off. So the really interesting resource, a whole lot of detail there that I'm not going to give because it, it sort of gives a even broader view of just... Indigenous life in North America in general, and then zooms in. Uh, Relevant to our particular little scrap of land around Salem is uh, the Bullbrook Archaeological Site in Ipswich, which is, I think, also Massachusetts, offers some of the earliest physical evidence of the original peoples in in this part of the world. So about 12,000 to 11,000 years ago, there were definitely humans in modern-day uh, Massachusetts. okay. Uh, because the soil of New England is so acidic, uh, organic material like shell and bone tend to be undetectable after being buried for a couple of centuries. So it's kind of a weird archaeological dark age. You know, we can't really go back that far here in terms of um, material evidence. But in the 1950s, archaeologists at Bullbrock uncovered spear tips uh, made out of red and black chert stone and the calcified remains of caribou. Um, so materials... ...that managed to survive, uh, and that suggests the area is a popular drive-hunting site. So that's some of our earliest evidence of people. They may have been there longer, but uh, they definitely were there that long ago. There were some of the stones that were from far afield. They were from upstate New York. They were from Maine. They were from further away. So there was long-range trading through North America at an early stage. So this is, you know, 10,000 years ago. And the eastern Algonquin people, who are the people who live in this part of the world... Uh, we're probably living mobile lives, living one place in the summer and one place in the winter, practicing agriculture and forest f- efficiency, so doing controlled burns and stuff, uh, and hunting megafauna like mammoths and mastodons, those delicious creatures that no longer exist. Mm. Apparently it was much colder back back this far um, okay. than it is today. So, you know, you still think of snow when you think of Boston, but like, apparently it's pretty cold in the the ten thousand or the eight thousand BC. Around four thousand to two and a half thousand years ago, uh, there's evidence from Cat's Cove archaeological site, which is now Salem Neck sewage plant. <laughs> so pretty close um to where we're talking about. Uh stone tools excavated there include a thing I'd never heard of, called an atlatl or a spear thrower. It seems to be these really cool devices that you balance a spear on and sort of Launch it like a slingshot,
2: like a portable trebuchet.
1: Yeah, not unlike a handheld trebuchet. So you kind of slingshot a spear uh, with great accuracy and speed, much more than you could by throwing it. And these seem to be, you know, widespread all the way down to Mexico. Um, they were a technology I'd never encountered, and they they look pretty cool. The Eastern Algonkins at this time probably hunted turkeys, deer, beavers, squirrel, lynxes, and foxes, and also collected nuts, berries. Uh, and waterways were also important for fish, shellfish, and canoe travel. I mean, the, mm-hmm. You think of this land being heavily wooded at this time, so uh, rivers were an important, they were the important highways uh, rather than land. Pole-framed houses, at least for winter, were, were common, and there's some evidence of those, uh, because as I say, it was colder back then. By around 1000 AD, we know for sure that the what are called the three sister crops are being cultivated here, corn, squash, and beans, kind of the staples of
2: um, the pre-Columbian agriculture. Probably still the staples of modern agriculture. Corn and beans, certainly.
1: People still eating them. So the homes that they would have lived in around the first time of Western contact were called wetus. Wetus, maybe? W-T-U-S. We would probably call them wigwams, but I don't think that is an Algonquian word. Um, And they were generally built near the shore in summer and inland in winter, uh, they did farming and hunting, and there was a division of labor between the sexes. A term we might have, you might have come across in researching this, guys, is NOMKIG. Mm, yes. that seems to have been a band of people. Um, so these were kind of a community with kin ties, but shifting membership over time and varying relationship with other bands. So you know, bands were kind of communities. They weren't fixed, I suppose, any more than towns or fixed communities. It wasn't necessarily like a like a family grouping, but it was a you know, a political and and, okay. and logistical unit. Um, and people would come right. and go over generations. So that that was what Nomekik was, was a group of people. And also, I suppose, the place that they lived, okay. uh, being in and around Salem. So just before Western contact, the sachem of the Pawtucket people, who are the people living in this part of New England, was a guy called Nana Pashmet. And he would have presided over a large part of the Pawtucket, Penacook. And Massachusetts land, stretching from Piscataqua, which is now Portsmouth, New Hampshire, all the way down to Muscatakwid, which is Concord, Massachusetts. So a pretty pretty big stretch.
0: Of, the original uh, names are much cooler, I have to <laughs> say. No, no offence to Portsmouth or Concord, but uh, yeah.
2: <laughs>
1: well, the original names aren't just places in England. Um, sure, that's and true. And basically everywhere east of the Mystic River, which is uh, Medford. So that's kind of a, a you know, large chunk of land and run by uh, Nana Peshmet. Like all of the leaders of his society in this kind of time period and, and for a long time before, he was relatively symbolic in terms of leadership. He wasn't a king. He was sort of the 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 chieftain or the head man. He, he was re- responsible for sort of um, diplomacy, I suppose, and okay. kind of renewing and encouraging good relationships with allies and, and their leaders um, and d- distribution of resources and well-being of the people. But like he wasn't a it, it, it isn't a direct mapping to sort of uh,
0: a king he's or a duke.
2: Exec Director for External Affairs and maybe the Chief Operating Officer as well, but not necessarily. <laughs>
0: he's he's well prepared for uh, white people mm. to emerge out of the sea, I'm uh,
1: sure. Yeah. And some of the, the allies and their leaders would have been the, like the, the Sagamore, Maskemet of Agawam and the Pachem, Paskenonaway of the Panacook people to the north. It's a population of the Potocut in... Before European contact was reasonably extensive, definitely thousands and thousands of people. We get a cameo here from Samuel de Champlain, who we met in our Quebec episode.
0: Quebec, yeah, 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 yeah. He
1: made his second trip to Cape Anne, which is just up the coast, in 1606, and came ashore in Gloucester, which is also, I believe, in Essex County, okay. which Salem is the seat of. And he had a relatively peaceful encounter with some 200 um, Pawtucket people. Who were in the area during the summer months? So uh, you
2: say relatively, Joe, which gives me gives me some trepidation.
1: I think there was a later encounter that had an ambush involved, but this time okay. I think it went okay. All right. He drew a map of the coast, and uh, his his map shows Pawtucket wigwams, gardens, woodlots, and parkland. Parklands? Apparently, yeah. Okay. And um, s- stages for drying fish, which apparently the English later extended, which is kind of interesting. This was a there's a fascinating story. Um... I found it on one website. We'll add, add a link to that. He basically had these conversations on the beach with some of the Potoka people. I think probably the the Sagamore uh, Kiohanmanek, uh, although I'm not entirely sure that was this visit.
2: Sorry, sorry, Joe. Is that is that a group or is no? That's is a, that... that's,
1: a that's, that's a guy. That's a guy. Okay, a, that's a leader. Yeah, so not not the Sagamore is a
0: is a, is a or something. Correct? Sort
1: of. Yeah, I think he's a step down from a from. Okay. um okay. Nana Peshambet. Okay. And. The basic arrangement was, like, he gave gifts, knives, I think, largely, and in response uh-huh. they had some kind of conversations, and he had kind of sketched out a map of the coast, and the Pawtucket people were like, yeah, well, there's another bay down here, and you've missed this river, because it's got an island at the mouth of it, so it wasn't obvious uh, from the sea, right. and they kind of helped him fill in the map, which is kind of cool, and put out pebbles where the most significant socums the south were uh, located, ah. um, which was, uh, yeah, it was. Uh, I never really seen such a close up um, account of that kind of interaction. Mm-hmm. However, uh, the Champlain was quite active at the fur trade further north. You know, he would, the French were kind of more interested in what would become Canada um, sure. and Maine, I suppose. And some of his actions up there and the, the you know, attempted relations with various native groups and indigenous groups. Seemed to have prompted conflicts between the Mi'kmaq further north and the Pawtucket down here, which in 1616 led to pretty much an all-out war, uh, which led Nenepashma to go into hiding along the Mystic River. Okay. Uh, And two years later, he'd actually be found and murdered there.
2: Okay. Okay.
1: So he was quite a significant and powerful leader, and he is being taken out at just the wrong time. Mm-hmm. As we'll At see. least uh,
0: Samuel de Champlain didn't uh, abduct him like I No, think he took the main, and,
1: Yeah, no, he took, he the took the Or no, the, the, the children, children of the main chief in Quebec. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah, a better interaction than that. Um, yeah. Uh, and I also found a, an interesting thing that he, he had seen some of the treatment of the Spanish of indigenous people in Saint-Domingue, uh, which was real brutal, and had sort of made a personal vow not to do that. Um, okay so he he was by the lights of the time as was trying to be uh diplomatic rather than sword and fiery um, Didn't stop he much. was he was not
2: relatively people, though, but uh, <laughs> less genocidal <laughs> than his so contemporaries so
1: his wife uh, pa- Nana Peshmet's wife only known as the Massachusetts Sunsquare um takes over leadership She does not seem to have a recorded personal name but Squaw was a uh, the, the feminine version of uh, Sokum so she was Equally prestigious, she was the leader by virtue of hereditary rules um, and that was fairly common in First Nation societies. Kind of bewilders the English a little bit um, that a woman was in charge, but it wasn't a problem to the Massachusetts. But she ends up with a rapidly changing world at her feet. Definitely tried to do a lot of diplomacy and hospitality with the settlers who keep arriving and Mark's going to delve into that and make alliances with the colonists in order to protect Her and her people from, for instance, the Mi'kmaq and the Abenaki, who had murdered her husband, and the Mohawks, who would do a lot of murdering a bit later. Part of this alliance involved transferring deeds of land that is nowadays considered northeastern Massachusetts to the colonists. You know, as we've discussed several times, the meaning of ownership and land ownership and land stewardship was widely differently understood by First Nations people and Europeans and so whether her intentions were to transfer ownership or to allow them to build a settlement for a winter or anything in between is uh, lost to history unfortunately but um, ultimately the colony won out and um, we'll see that the impact wasn't great on the Potocot people uh, when Europeans start setting up kind of permanent settlements
2: Okay Mark, are you gonna
0: shed some light on how things are? are definitely gonna improve from uh, this point. <laughs> they'll,
2: they'll they'll improve for the white folk. Yeah, uh, is 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 how I would you that. Yeah, and okay. um, just just to say I, I found like oh god, so many flipping resources uh, on the um, it was the Salem Historical Society's uh, website, and they have all of these. Uh, Ebooks, kind of P- PDFs embedded in there from all of these uh, primary um, sources. Uh, I, I, I took little bits here and there, but certainly from yeah. from the Annals of Salem, Salem from its first settlement by Joseph B. Felt. I've
0: got a, I've got a couple of those too. I feel like that's yeah. generally the issue with North American places, like when we when we do like Turkmenistan. So much it's yeah you, you struggle to find anything yeah. and then with north american locations it's like oh uh, we just have a an absolute abundance of stuff to try to get through yeah yeah uh, yeah so i'm looking but, at that uh, now
1: like there's a biological sketch of william gray of salem a merchant yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. we don't need that level of detail. yeah exactly no. no no one no one does um so just a, just a, a choice quote about what a great place this this was to come to on the bleak and rock-bound shores of their newly chosen home, they must endure hardship and privation and suffering and a constant and never-ceasing contest and strife for their very existence. Historical Sketch of Salem, uh, 1626 to 1879. I thought that was a recent Google review. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so the first, uh, the first guy to talk about is, is, is Roger Conant, uh, born in Budley, uh, I'm using a northern accent there it's actually the south coast of England uh, but it does sound like a, a kip like you might want to leave immediately and travel many thousands of miles away from to a bleak and rock-bound shore <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, he was born in 1591 he was a fisherman and he was the leader of the first group that would come to to Salem uh, formerly referred to as, as Nam Keg but uh, as as kind of Joe pointed out it wasn't really the name of the place but that's, that's kind of what it, it gets referred to as in these... Uh, in these books written the kind of the sixteen seventeen eighteen hundreds, mm, spelled in abundance of different ways. Indeed, yeah. Uh, so they, they they arrive in in what would be Salem in sixteen twenty six, uh, and he was described as a most religious, prudent, and worthy gentleman by his contemporaries. Um, I think Joe, you, you wanted to to cut in here for a second, right? Yes.
1: Some accounts say that they were were led to Namkeg by yeah. First Nations warriors, and that's nice, kind of a friendly act of whatever. Um there are others that say they arrived in winter and find the found the wetus or wigwams empty and just kind of assumed the village a bit abandoned rather than yeah. being seasonal and kinda took up took up residence. I don't know, which is true. Um but the the relations do seem to have been reasonably good from early on, uh, to be fair. But, you know, whether it was a happenstance of needing somewhere to camp out for the winter
2: or being kind of taken in. Is uh, is up for debate. I've I've heard an awful lot over the years about kind of the surprising, I mean, for for a modern audience, surprising uh, levels of kind of infrastructure and development that Mm. had been in place in kind of North America across you know various uh, various groups in in the north and east coast, uh, and that people would literally come come along and find peers. And stuff, stuff that you would just wouldn't assume would be there, you know. Yeah,
1: and and the sheer, the, the sheer amount of agriculture as well. Like I, I you exactly know, yeah. growing up with cowboys and Indian films, you're kind of given this idea of sort of nomadism mm. and this, wildness. This place is
2: empty. No one's here. It and, was and no sign of people. Yeah, yeah.
1: it was. Um, you know, those people in the Great Plains were pushed away from the places they had lived for thousands of years. Yeah, exactly. And adopted new life ways Yeah, it was it was full on settlement, agriculture, trade. Everything you could imagine in a society, um, yep, and it's just not there anymore.
2: So, um, this this group that arrived in Salem had actually originally settled in in Cape Ann, um, not too far away, but also not that close. And and when they were there, they engaged in planting, fishing, trading uh, under a charter they had received in uh, 1624. They ultimately weren't able to make a go of it, uh, and when the Cape project was cut, they were quote happily freed from the drones and scum of their society. Gosh. Apparently it was quite like a fractious time. They couldn't kind of get everyone pulling in the same direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Roger Conant then uh, pushed them onto a better position in modern day Salem. I think the, the port was more favorable. There's a few other kind of things as well that, that made it a little bit better. Uh, it had more shelter, better soil and a natural harbor.
1: Let's do some better.
2: Yeah, it's a lot of good things. Uh, I think, yeah, none of the farming had worked in Cape Ann. That was a big a big bugbear. Um, they used support in England to make their move official. Uh, despite this, they were very close to quitting Salem also. And following their their pastor to uh, Virginia, or potentially just going back to England, they sent a man called John Woodbury to England, who engaged with the Council from New England and managed to convince them to officially set up a colony under a man called John Endicott, mm. uh, who was born in Chagford in 1589, quote, a man of dauntless courage. Uh, so he's kind of the next guy we, we kind of hear about as, as, as Mr. Salem. Yeah, uh, he was also, a, quote, a, a fit instrument to begin this wilderness work. Uh, and I also have my notes here that he was totally chagadelic being from Chagford. <laughs> uh, you see see what I did. Oh, um, okay. yeah. <laughs>
1: Were they all Puritans at this point? Or is that not? Quite? So
2: I, I think I think that the group that's there are quite puritan which is why settlers. there was such a yeah. yeah the, this kind of first round that was there under Roger Conant, because I think that's why there was such a draw when their pastor went to Virginia. Yeah, they were really tempted to follow him and just like abandon the project of Salem. But um, they
1: would have been experiencing religious persecution in England, which what are we at sixteen thirty? Would have been. I mean, no notionally would yes. have been Stuart England, so King James or King Charles, with their Scottish ideas. Uh, interestingly, they would have been doing a lot of witch hunting in England at this point. Marvelous under James the first, um, but doesn't seem to be a thing in New England just yet. But yes, yeah, so the Puritans would have had some motive to. Get out and be able to express themselves religiously mm. yeah. somewhere untamed. Um, in the and new world. in the new world and that that is a feature. And also, we we came across a little um, anecdote that because of the peaceful handover between Conant and Endicott, that's where the name Salem comes from. So, so uh, apparently, according to Wikipedia.
2: Well, I was going to say, well, I'll, I'll I'll get into to this a little bit, but. Um, there's there's debate about it in the various books I read about exactly kind of how warm it was. Okay. I think I think yeah, I think basically Roger Conant was kind of superseded by John Endicott. John Endicott basically kind of stamped his authority on it, and Roger Conant didn't really have the plums to kind of put it up to him. Yes, he was, he was kind of presented uh, Oh, the ki- the king says I I run things now. Do you have any problem with that? Uh. I guess not.
1: But him peacefully agreeing to this was a model to all of his followers. Yeah. And they went, and we'll call it sh- Shalom to recognize our peaceful coexistence.
2: I I, th- I think there was slight concern that it wouldn't have been so peaceful. Yeah. So I think they decided to make a big deal of it yeah. when when mm-hmm. when the guy didn't make a big fight out of it. <laughs> um, but I don't think he was necessarily in love with the idea and basically just kind of. Kept himself to himself after his yeah, You wouldn't like, need to make a big deal out of it. If, if you're it a mess gone. now, anyway. I don't want to be hearing about it. Don't <laughs> be coming crying to me. Kind of thing. I think, genuine. I think that was that kind of the approach after that. Yeah. And, and Endicott uh, was uh, appointed governor of Salem, set sail with his wife, Abigail, and a few more uh, fresh immigrants for the project and some cattle. Uh, as well he met with Roger Conant uh, on the beach apparently uh, as they hopped off the boat and proceeded to officially found the town of Salem which from 1629 became a part of the brand spanking new entity called Massachusetts hmm. uh, which was given the power pretty much to do with what they liked as long as the new laws they may create were not quote repugnant to those in England so no crazy stuff, but um, yeah, as I say, Conant was not uh, totally thrilled to be told by a man, f- literally fresh off a boat, that he was now a chump and uh, he needed to get out of there. Um, but uh, but yeah, anyway, Endicott kind of was was a, a man of action, a man of authority, so it all kind of uh, you know seemed natural enough. I think. Also, we, we kind of we've talked a little bit about Nanapashmet, and, um, and living in the town at this time was his wife and three children. But uh, we'll, we'll hear a little bit more about them in a bit
1: okay so she she was the the boss of the people so yes she was staying and but she, staying she was a in town with, her, with the children
2: yeah okay. so I mentioned kind of the rule was basically no crazy stuff uh, Thomas Morton 1630 with some crazy stuff quote yeah. when the first of May came he set up a Maypole drank and danced about it quote as if celebrating the feast of the Roman goddess Flora or the beastly practices of the mad bacchanalians says Nathaniel Morton our
1: first Nathaniel our
2: uh, first, first Nathaniel <laughs> ding 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 uh, um, to the maypole, he affixed rhymes which he had composed, something, some tending to lasciviousness <laughs> and others to the traction and scandal of the names of several persons. He changed the name of the hill from Mount Wollaston to Merry Mount, as if the jollity would always be continued. And continue it would.
1: I'm so he, sure. was, he was stapling dirty limericks <laughs> to his maypole. Yeah, okay. basically. There once was a man from Pawtucket
2: who <laughs> uh, <laughs> saw my maypole and then admired it uh, uh anyway so john endicott uh heard about this uh, mild fun and travelled fifteen miles, stupidly on foot, to force this guy to chop it down and admonish him. I imagine he marched the entire way,
0: axe in hand. Uh, <laughs> yeah. the, the um, wrath of God was in him.
2: <laughs> Morton sounds, you know, he sounds fun. Sounds, I mean, he sounds, you know, pre- pretty dull to be honest by modern standards, but you know, full fun for the time. It did turn out he was maybe a bit of a jerk. He then went on to kind of sell gunpowder to the local tribes. Uh, which uh, was not seen as basically cool beans by the Americans. Yeah, and it did and, exacerbate you know, existing conflicts as well. are kind of like, it, exactly, okay, you guys are
1: fighting? Yeah. What if you had guns?
2: Yeah, he was basically a weapons trader by the end, yeah, which is okay. yeah, great.
1: Anyway. Endicott chopping things down gives me an opportunity to talk about the tree,
2: the really, really old tree. Okay, <laughs> oh, oh, sure. Great. It's exactly this old. Oh, from 1629?
1: Oh. There, is, there is a pear tree, the Endicott pear tree, All right. in modern-day Danvers or Salem Village at this time that is believed to be the oldest cultivated fruit tree in North America, having been planted in 1630-ish by John Endicott.
0: Oh, right. Maybe uh, he chopped down the maple and then planted and turned it into a, a, a pear tree, tree yeah. in, in, in its place. So it's, yeah. it's
1: survived many several bouts of hurricane damage, and even a hacksaw sort of vandalism in the 60s, which left it only six foot tall, which for a tree that's as old as America is uh is not not very tall so it's
2: a smelly hippies always gonna take it too far yeah i think it's surrounded
1: by chicken wire now to keep it safe but you know it's uh, a okay. really really old tree unassailable
2: I'm, I'm joe out okay. <laughs> fair enough so uh more vessels come uh with many more immigrants um and uh, they arrive in Salem in 1629. The official count of people at this time, sorry, not a count of people, a count of houses was about 10 to 20, plus one fancy one for the governor, and about 200 people in total. On the 20th of July, they held their first election for a pastor and a teacher, uh, the first bit of voting in what would become America.
1: So, so this is older than, but like this was like the capital of Massachusetts
2: initially. Like the, the uh, as, as far as I know, yeah. yeah, it was it was it was certainly one of the main uh, kind of landing points for people coming into Massachusetts. Mm. The, the, those kind of vessels I mentioned were coming to Massachusetts. They weren't coming to Salem, but they came in through Salem. Salem was was the gateway to Massachusetts and kind of the, the northeast of what would be America. So the town became officially established in 1633. Whatever that means, it's, it seems like it keeps getting re-established multiple times over via you know charters, and now it's a town, now it's a city, and now and it's a super city. And corporations and, and, and yeah. yeah, who? Bit of a snooze, really. Um, but it, it they they go on about it in the book. So I don't know.
0: Is it around this time, Mark, where like they petitioned the king to allow them to establish a town, and he basically wrote back and said no, and then they just did it anyway. Oh, well, I mean, it's probably it be... 1633. It's probably what
1: we're talking about here.
2: Oh, uh, I, okay. I think that's Danvers. I'll get to that. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I don't, awesome. I don't think that's Salem. I think it got its charter pretty all right. easy. Grant. So in 1634, they start to appoint deputies rather than just all the, quote, free men assembling in what had been called the Great and General Court. Uh, which would happen four times per year. Not long after Endicott arrived, they realized they were all quite ill and bunged up and not feeling very well. So they sent for a doctor from Plymouth, uh, Dr. Samuel Fuller, Who then kind of drifted into that no crazy stuff uh, area, sort of spreading a form of congregational worship that was popular in his hometown, but which led to some complaining that uh, he was creating rash innovations, apparently, uh, which were going back to England and was not very popular. Hmm. And I think smallpox was a bit of an issue here, Joe. Do you want to? Yeah, smallpox
1: really was. It's what they call virgin soil epidemics, are what happen when people who've never met a disease before. Yeah, disease for the first time, and like smallpox swept through the people of Namkig mm-hmm. so they reckon that the number of indigenous people here might have been cut by ninety percent in the few yeah. first few decades of of the English colony. Uh, only several hundred men are reported in the sixteen thirties of the Potoka people who were there. Like there were thousands in the fifteen mm-hmm. hundreds, and now there's hundreds. There's always the debate about whether these epidemics were intentional in any way. You know, there are ways to spread disease if you want to and use Mm -hmm. it as a tool of colonization. Very difficult to prove that unless someone's written it down as their plan. Uh, Mm -hmm. But there are some unsettling quotes from colonists at the time. Um, Okay. So John John Winthrop, uh, who was governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony at this point in 1634, I think, uh, he said, "For the natives, they are all near dead of smallpox. So the Lord hath cleared our title to what we possess."
0: Oh, uh, so oh that, my God! So that's a point—a point, a point oh, of view. When God my, has smiled upon us,
1: manifest destiny is the way you think of the world. Uh, two of the sun Sunsquaw's sons die. So t- uh, two of the children of um, Nana Peshmet, uh, yeah. I think the older two sons die in this, uh, this epidemic. Um, and a- again. Another colonist wrote that uh, the epidemic made the land so much more fit for the English nation to inhabit. So you know, that's what's going on. Oh boy! Uh, it it wasn't a war of conquest. It was just disease and privation that led to the complete displacement of the uh, the First Nations people by by this growing English community.
2: Oh boy! Okay, here's some. There's some tough quotes in there. Um, well, I, I guess one thing to recognize if you're feeling a bit, you know, sc- screw these guys, is oh. that they're they, they were, they were still having a pretty awful time of it, actually. Um, when the Arbella uh, arrived in 1630 at Cape Ann, they were greeted with fresh strawberries. Uh, apparently that was, that. that was, I saw that mentioned a couple of times, and, and other delights. Uh, but as they approached uh, Salem proper, they realised the preceding winter, uh, 80 people had died. They barely had two weeks of food left. So I think as a part of the, the result of this and how bad things were in Salem at the time, the decision was made to move the seat of government to Charlestown. Uh, now, really, kind of Boston, really. That's north of the river um, in Boston. So uh, yeah. Salem... Yeah, Salem loses some of its importance as a result of that. And just to kind of get, get a sense of the the vibe, uh, in 1638, a man called Isaac Davis is paid for a pair of stocks. Uh, and in 1657, two people set out to make sure the stocks are sufficient, because I guess they're using them so frequently. And they also set up, uh, in addition, a whipping post. So, yeah, it's, it's cool vibes in Salem. Right. Uh, Do we have a flag yet,
0: Luke? Um, Yeah, well, yes and no. I mean, I I couldn't actually tell when the flag was established. Basically, the flag is like one of these really, to be honest, terrible flags, uh, which is just the city seal uh, on a flag on a a blue field. Uh, There's a story here on the on the Salem, Massachusetts uh, government like website that tells a story about uh, a guy called Elihu Yale who um, okay set up a trade for pepper between uh sumatra and kind of basically the the massachusetts the colony uh, this guy apparently established his trade in 1654 which is why i dropped it around this time in the notes basically the seal is inspired by this guy it was ordered in 1839 it's uh, shows a ship under full sail approaching a coast designated by the costume of the person standing upon it and by the trees near him as a portion of the east indies beneath the shield this motto divitis inde usque ad ultimum sinium signifying to the farthest point of the rich east
1: such a weird flag for a place in in new england
0: yeah and above the shield a dove bearing an olive branch in her mouth and then the 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 date 1626 it's a real weird one it's a it's a strange seal it's a strange flag uh to be honest uh i I don't i didn't see any i didn't get any pictures of like the flag being flown anywhere i don't think they're sort of particularly keen on the the flag maybe but uh that uh, seemingly is the official flag is just this this strange seal uh, i'm just thinking
2: about the the route from sumatra to salem doesn't sound not not normal (laughs) yeah in any respects are we sure it's not direct well, I mean, you have to go
1: round a lot of. No. Uh, oh yeah, no, One continent or another. Yeah.
2: yeah, exactly. It's just yeah, just really mad. Doesn't yeah. seem intuitive. Yeah. Anyway, but anyway, okay, that's, that's a thing. Fair enough. Um, so, uh, apart from cycling to ever more complex forms of administration, putting people in stocks and whipping posts, uh, the mainly undertook fishing in boats called shalops. Uh, in part because the land was not particularly fertile though apparently slightly more fertile than Cape Anne and also because the seas were extremely fertile uh, and also there were whales there's this kind of debate mm. about who who was the first whaling town in yeah. New England uh, because that's obviously something we're to not be talking about
0: Nantucket here anyway right so uh,
2: exactly yes and I think that's yeah. kind of the debate between Nantucket and and Salem as to who was first uh. everyone assumed Nantucket but actually there's this um this bit about how how Nantucket learned it when a guy from salem came there and taught them all so i think salem right. maybe has the drop on them um
1: it's not what i'd be rushing to uh, claim, <laughs> claim but you know
2: you know whatever whenever you can flog in a t-shirt to some some tourists i guess the home of whaling whales yeah. to extinction well, uh, i mean
0: if you had whales and witches that'd be yeah i mean arguably I too mean, much that- for a small town
1: that's a, it's a very New England knockoff version of Dungeons and Dragons, isn't it? Whales, yeah. the, the witches.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, when Richard Mather came to the Bay Colony in 1635, he saw what he described as mighty whales spewing up water in the air like the smoke of a chimney of such incredible bigness that we did not wonder that the body of Jonah could be in the belly of a whale. 1684, the son of Nana Pashima, the last son of Nana Pashima, mm-hmm. George Henry March, or as he was known, uh, Nonos, uh, which apparently was due to smallpox scars great nice. he had inherited the rights to his father's land he passed mm-hmm. away and in 1686 the town pays the local tribes 40 pounds to gain full title to all the native held lands as they're slightly concerned that their charter will be rescinded and they're kind of keen to affirm their position right are you ready for a for a sad quote guys i mean we've had a few yeah we have quote george left descendants but they were simply wanderers in the land their fathers had trod in majesty um, so, yeah, that's, yeah. Grim. that's 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 that. I mentioned about the claim to be the the initial whaling capital of of, of North America. Sometime in the late century, again, it's it's not very well known. Uh, and maybe slightly controversially, ahead of their their local rivals in Nantucket. Nantucket apparently officially started in 1690, learning everything they knew from a Cape Cod man called Ichabod Paddock. You don't you don't meet Ichabods anymore, do you? No, uh, but name. yeah, m- maybe this is the reason why Salem was was out in front. Who who knows? Although Salem is not Cape Cod, so I don't know. After a very shaky start, starting to bed in. Overall, things have improved for them only, not for other people. But you know. Mm. Yeah. They're, they're ready to, to go from strength to strength, I'm and
1: sure. Back home, you've got, like, the English Civil War has happened, right, during this time. Oliver Cromwell. Uh,
2: I guess so, yeah.
1: He, he's ruled over a Puritan theocracy for a while, and then they reinstated a king who was Anglican. So there's a lot going on back home that probably isn't rocking New England too much. She seems to be left to their own devices to just mm-hmm. run a small town and extract resources. Yeah. but try to um, stay
2: alive. Don't die. Whip yeah, whip this whip this
1: dude. But I do think there's a consistent kind of administrative chaos when like new kings and new lords protector turn up and sort mm-hmm. of send charters saying, "Hey, you've got a new governor. Or, we don't like the old governor. Or, He's a sinner." You know? Yeah. <laughs> Stuff that's brewing around that's maybe relevant to what's coming
0: next. Okay. Well, we'll take a quick break here and then we'll get to uh witches just after this. so before we get into this just mention a couple things that were were quite helpful there's a video breakdown like a sort of five minute animation by uh ted the talks company uh which was actually really good and was is is worth having a look at there's also uh podcasting comrades which i should shout out one being stuff you should know who did an episode on this and the other uh, being uh, our friend Sam Hume's uh, History of Witchcraft, which uh, he has a whole episode on this thing as well.
1: Yes, I, th- I think it's the last episode of the History of Witchcraft that's currently available. He, he He's kind of moved on to his Pax Britannica project, yeah. which is kind of going yeah. through the political history of the UK. Relevant as well. But if you want to get your teeth dug into witch trials in general, um, yeah. no, no better resource out there.
0: I mean, his 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 episode on this is about 35 minutes long, if I recall. Mm-hmm. I'm going to try to blitz through in about 10 minutes. So, um, yeah, here we go. <laughs> but if you want more, that's where you can find it. Um, so, yeah, the events in Salem in 1692 were part of a, a longer uh, story of witch hunts that began in Europe between 1300 and 1330 and ran all the way through to the late 18th century, with the last known execution for witchcraft taking place in Switzerland in 1782, which is disturbingly late, uh, yeah. but there you go. Um, and yeah, trials and executions varied according to time and place, but it's generally believed that some hundred to 110,000 people were in total tried for witchcraft, and between 40 to 60,000 of them were executed, ultimately, <sighs> which is... Uh, Crazy uh, to think about, and that they side.
1: generally cropped up in in sort of rashes of accusations. So people get a bit paranoid.
0: Yeah, I mean, paranoia plays a big a big part in it, and we'll we'll talk a little bit about that.
1: And men and women were accused of witchcraft in this period, but women were over predominantly
0: women. Predominantly
1: women, but it wasn't yeah. that like only women could be witches. It's just that sure. generally, if there was a way to socially exclude people from society, it's usually women who are not exactly performing whatever role you think they should, or the, the, the chief targets. For sure.
0: So, and yeah, I mean, you, you, touch on it, you touch on it there. Yeah, we'll see that people who are maybe on the fringes of society are the most likely people to suffer when these when these things crop up, uh, these kind of mass hysterias. So yeah, Salem went through a period of unrest in the late 16, uh, 1600s, I guess, and was still very much, as we've heard, establishing itself as a town in this era i from my understanding you essentially have sort of ongoing conflict with a number of outside groups including the native groups from the area you also have conflict with french settlers mm-hmm. uh, so it's it's a it's a scary right. place to live basically uh i mean you have all kinds of disease uh, which we've already already heard about as well and then you have once you venture outside of your you're, the walls of your very small town. Uh, you're you're kind of opening yourself up to potential attack from outsiders. And
1: weren't there a lot of refugees as well from uh, from wars with the French? Yeah. Uh, and also a lot of orphans. Oh, um, who would have yes. been a burden?
0: A lot of kids would have lost their their parents, one or two parents for sure. And be living uh, with a cousin
1: or an aunt or whatever. And, and yeah, that's another exactly. stress on kin relationships. Yeah
0: it's it's a it's a stressful place to live uh salem Mm -hmm. in the in the 1600s is not a fun place to be and add add into that your your kind of religious oppression uh living under this kind of quite harsh puritan regime Mm -hmm. uh and then you have add on top of that society like uh, other societal uh pressures like families in conflict over land rights grazing privileges people not attending church enough People stubbing their toes, uh,
2: yeah, <laughs> bad haircuts. And I believe at
0: this time, were, a church had been newly established uh, within yeah. the village. Um, so
1: Salem Village was got, had got village. Its, its own yeah. preacher for the first time.
0: Yeah, had a, had its own preacher, a guy called Samuel Paris, who I believe was uh, was not a particularly nice character. Seems
1: to have been controversial. Yeah,
0: yeah. So, for some reason, uh, two young girls, the daughter and niece of Paris, so both of them connected to him, began to exhibit quite odd symptoms in February 1692. They uh, had fits, described as beyond the power of epileptic fits or natural disease to affect. By one witness, the girls seemingly screamed, threw things around the room, uh, made strange noises, crawled on under furniture, and contorted themselves into peculiar positions, according to uh, Reverend Diodat Lawson, a former minister in Salem Village. And the reason for these behaviours has never really been properly resolved. Uh, a lot of people talk about ergot poisoning. That seems mm. to be a particularly prominent theory and one that's sort of...
1: Yeah, I don't know if I buy that one. Yeah. There are symptoms like, you know, nausea and vomiting and mm. stuff that you would expect to have if you were poisoned that maybe don't really line up with only having a fit when somebody else is in the room. It seems more psychological.
0: Exactly. So... A local doctor, William Grigg, claims that the girls have been bewitched or are, quote, under an evil hand. And soon thereafter, other young girls begin to exhibit similar symptoms. Uh, So in late February, arrest warrants were issued for three women uh, whom the girls had accused of bewitching them. The first was the Paris' Caribbean slave, a woman named Tituba, who I don't think has ever maybe never had a last name or certainly it hasn't survived. She She's an
1: interesting one to read up on. She, she, yeah, yeah. it's not even clear where she's from, uh, but yeah. she may have known some th- She may have known or said some things about maybe voodoo and other rituals she might've seen in the Caribbean. Yes. That might've yes. freaked the girls out. That's exactly. possible.
0: Uh, there was also a homeless beggar uh, named Sarah Good and a young, uh, she was a young mother, uh, I believe single, and then the uh, a poor elderly woman named Sarah Osborne, who had rarely been seen in church and who was suing the family of one of her accusers, mm. coincidentally interesting oh God almighty this. yeah this is awful. so basically three outsiders uh you yeah. know people who are who are probably looked down on by uh most of the rest of the the village uh come under suspicion it's
2: It's, it's like a parable a slave, yeah, yeah. a beggar, and, and a poor old lady, yep.
0: Sam also mentions in his uh, his podcast that many of the people who were persecuted were also orphans, as you said, Joe. Uh, they were prom- traumatized or otherwise marginalized for pu- from Puritan society, uh, which might have contributed to their being accused. Uh, so under interrogation, Tituba confesses to uh, witchcraft, likely in an attempt to obtain a lenient, uh, lenient sentence uh, by passing on information about other, quote-unquote, witches. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is a pattern that will continue people confessing hoping to uh, sort of be be looked on lightly by the court. Uh, She claimed there were other people acting alongside her in the service of the devil and accusations soon began to multiply. Hysteria spread through the community as others followed Tituba's lead and confessed in order to plead for leniency and to pass on information on other people. In May 1692, the newly appointed governor of Massachusetts ordered the establishment of a special court to deal with all of the cases of witchcraft in the area. In June, the first sentence of death was passed against one of Bridget Bishop, who was described as not living a Puritan lifestyle, for she wore black clothing and odd costumes, which was against the Puritan code.
1: Oh, I thought they all wore black.
0: That's that's. I mean, that's that's what I have here. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. May, maybe
1: maybe we're completely wrong. Maybe the wrong kind like.
0: of black. Who knows? Mm. <laughs> Any guesses as to how she was uh, executed?
1: Horribly, I assume. Uh, and. Uh... <laughs> Be being floated or no. burnt at the stake. Um...
0: Funny enough, that's exactly the what I was fishing for. There is that apparently burning of witches was was a lot rarer than you would think. Uh, okay. the traditional view of witch hunts is that victims were burned or sometimes drowned, as you said, with the sort of perverse logic that actual witches would survive either way. In which case, why would you have attempted to kill yeah. them in that in yeah. that way? In Salem, uh, victims of witch hunts were generally hung. Uh, and burnings oh, okay. more commonly took place in earlier, uh, witch hunts in Europe. So right. apparently, almost all I—I I couldn't find any accounts of burnings in Salem, even though that's what you would typically associate with witch hunts. I mean, good. Yeah, good question mark. <laughs> I think
1: I think Joan of Arc places an outsized image of yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. So I assume hanging was just the standard execution method for other. I crimes. think it was. Yes, yeah.
0: this woman uh, Bishop was ex- executed eight days later on what would be known as Gallows Hill in uh, Salem Town, so mm-hmm. she was hung. I believe it's actually a nice park now, uh, Gallows Hill, and has been renamed (laughs) subsequently.
1: And there is something horribly mundane about it, like about going to the courthouse to prove, like, the the secular courthouse? To be, like, Uh, accused of the secular crime (laughs) of witchcraft is a completely different world. Like, this isn't that long ago.
2: Yeah, but I think you could look at any kind of miscarriage of justice that, in retrospect was like motivated by the person's place in society or yeah. whatever and kind of go same thing basically you might as well accuse them of witchcraft yeah.
1: <laughs> what kind of defense can you present in a court case where it's like so you're accused of being a witch and consorting with satan what do you have to say for yourself yeah i'm not
0: like or i did but i'm sorry Satan's not
1: real like, well
0: I was going to touch on this as well, like one of the main issues of the court hung on the issue of what was called spectral evidence, which I know Mm. is a complete misnomer because evidence is something that you could present in fact, which therefore, you know, it can't be spectral. Not spectral. Yes. Yes. But uh, spectral evidence, which was testimony of the afflicted, who claimed to see an apparition or shape of the person who was allegedly afflicting them, right, uh, which obviously nobody else can see. Oh. Yeah. So, but I suppose if
1: if witches are real, then all of that's real. So it's all about what yep. society believes.
0: Sure. Following the execution, the court adjourned to consider the situation and to consult with prominent New England ministers on the matter, and they basically published a written statement. Uh, the it's a very long statement. I read through it, but. Uh, I'll quote two parts of it here, two pertinent parts. Part uh, First part says, We judge that in the prosecution of these and all such witchcraft, there is a need of a very critical and exquisite caution, lest by too much credulity for things received only upon the devil's authority there be a door open for a long train of miserable consequences and Satan get an advantage over us, for we should not be ignorant of his devices. So that sounds pretty okay. good, right? They're like, okay, we don't want to yeah, let this get out yeah, of hand.
1: So just be careful. This is We just, don't want to be tools you know, of
0: Satan. We don't want to go... Maybe
1: Satan's know. trying to drive us apart.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but then later on it says, Nevertheless, we cannot but humbly recommend unto the government the speedy and vigorous prosecution of such as have rendered themselves obnoxious according to the direction given in the laws of God and the wholesome statute of the English nation for the detection of witchcrafts. So, yeah,
1: these guys being the first Americans does explain a lot about its challenges of separating church and state.
0: Yeah, I suppose so. I mentioned spectral evidence already. The other so-called evidence included a touch test where accused witches were ordered to touch their victims as they were having a fit or seizure. And if the accuser uh, stopped, uh, like if the if the person uh, stopped having the fit or whatever it was, the accused was therefore condemned. Uh, I don't know how that exactly works. But uh, that's that was something that was used as evidence. Uh, the court also exa- examined and accused witches for what they deemed witch witches teats. Uh, which uh, is a... sounds inappropriate, <laughs> as in as cold as a what's what, what is a witch's witch's teat? teat is a mole or blemish somewhere in the body that was insensitive to touch. Which, as far as I know, most oh, moles most are. Moles. Yeah. yeah. Much. I've,
1: I've seen that in in some kind of fiction yeah was it a hocus pocus film or the sabrina uh, tv show or the something Roald Dahl i one. i i i think the the mark that doesn't have any sensation that that is a, it's made its way into some popular fiction i
2: can't remember. I mean, i've from. just heard the phrase cold as a witch's teeth. <sighs> in clean times okay
0: i've actually never heard that before but fair enough so yeah five people were hanged the following month then another five and then eight uh the 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 month of September and you can see where that's going. Uh in the in the same month the husband of one of the accused uh refused to comply with the court. Good. Uh this guy was called Giles Corey and it is one of Does the Does that mean most... he's a witch? Witch witchy you mean? No. So I'm gonna tell you a story of Giles Corey. Giles Corey was born in England and he wasn't a model citizen. Uh he had once apparently beaten one of his indentured farm workers to death uh after believing he had stolen some apples. That's an
1: overreaction.
0: Yeah. And he was found guilty and fined, mm. fined because apparently corporal punishment was permitted against servants at the time. Yeah. So, the, yeah, that was basically the maximum punishment that he could he could receive. Uh, it's also the maximum of amount of corporal servants. punishment
2: you can meet. out to murder someone
0: at the time of the witch trials. Corey was eighty years old and living with Martha, his third wife, having been widowed twice. Martha was accused of being a witch and arrested on a charge of witchcraft in March of 1692. So this has been going on for a year now. Uh, no, this is the, the... the I'm flashing back slightly oh, no, this is, already, this is all okay, 1692. Sorry. Uh, and he initially believed the charges until he himself was arrested a month later uh, on the same day as a woman bishop who I mentioned earlier and his trial commenced in September after Bishop and a number of others had been executed. But he refused to speak or to enter any plea. And according uh, to the law at the time, a person who refused to plead could not be tried, Uh, but they could be compelled to engage with the courts. And the usual method method was to be pressed. Prisoners were stripped naked and heavy boards were laid on their bodies. Then rocks or boulders were laid upon the planks of wood and more and more weight was added until the prisoner complied.
1: Eighty years old, you Squeezing say? Squeezing
0: words out of an eighty-year-old man okay. on September seventeenth. Okay. I'm gonna, I'm gonna read uh, directly from one of the sources here, uh, which was uh, on Wikipedia. But it's, it's, it's one of those. I think it comes directly from one of those e-books that you mentioned earlier, Mark. It says on September seventeenth, Corey was subjected to the procedure by Sheriff George Corwin, but he was steadfast in his refusal. Nor did he cry out in pain as the rocks were placed on the boards. After two days. Corey was asked three times to enter a plea, but each time he replied, more weight, and the sheriff complied. Oh, 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 oh. Yes. Like something the witch would say. Yeah. Occasionally, Corwin would even stand upon the stones himself. Robert Califf, who was witness along with the other townsfolk, later said in the pressing, Giles Corey's tongue was pressed out of his mouth, and the sheriff, with his cane, forced it in again. Mm-hmm. There are several oh accounts of Corey's last words. The most commonly told one is that he repeated his request for more weight. And this is how it was dramatized in *The Crucible*, but it may also have been more rocks. Uh, another t- telling it. Uh, another telling notes it as "Damn you! I curse you and Salem."
1: That's less um, stoic.
2: Yeah. yeah. Well, snappy. Yeah,
0: that was about the peak of the trials, as people came to believe that the convicts couldn't possibly all be witches. Increase Mather. Increase being a a great. Uh, first name I'd never, yeah, I'd never that's
1: a real Puritan name as well
0: uh, he was the president of Harvard College and he uh, urged yes yeah he urged greater scrutiny on the court saying it would be better that 10 suspected witches may escape than one innocent person be condemned I think it was a, possibly a bit late uh, on that score <laughs> but uh, yeah public support began to wane for these trials. The government dissolved the court in October and mandated that its successor disregard spectral evidence.
1: Which I think in, in England was not considered at all. So yeah. there hadn't been some executive witchcraft in England for donkey's years. I think about
0: 100, yeah. It's about 100 mm-hmm. years prior to this. But trials continued with dwindling intensity until early 1693. So it took around a year for this entire thing to kind of wrap itself up. And by May, the government had pardoned and released all those in prison on witchcraft charges. And then all in all, around twenty people were eventually executed as witches, which I actually thought it was more, given that like mm. how long in the memory this thing has has lived and how famous an incident it is i i w- i assumed it would have been much more than that, but yeah, yeah, i mean that's a, that's a lot of people it's a lot to of executions made up yeah
2: yeah that's that's the other thing is that like we're we're still like in the hundreds really yeah. like it it is a percentage of their people yeah. that they accused of being witches and, and hung do, do we know how many people there were well there were there were 200 back in 1630 um okay so so it it's, can have been more than
0: let's say 300 at this well, point. well maybe so,
2: four or five 600 but still yeah 20, 20 people is still a wedge out of that significant percentage
1: yeah more than 200 people were accused
0: yeah yeah so only 20 were were executed but yes uh, several times more were were accused and were arrested In January uh, 1697, so around five years later, the Massachusetts General Court declared a day of fasting for the tragedy of the Salem Witch Trials. General Court later deemed the trials unlawful, leading to Justice Samuel Sewell to publicly apologize for his role in the process. And the damage to the community lingered on even after Massachusetts colony passed legislation restoring the good names of the condemned and providing financial restitution to their heirs in 1711. And I did mention The Crucible there, a play by Arthur Miller, which I believe has been adapted to uh, to film as well. And it is probably the most famous uh, adaption of uh, these events. It uh, uses the trial events to reflect on the actions of the House Committee on Un-American Activities uh, under Senator Joe McCarthy, which was essentially a witch hunt for... Communists, uh, that took place. Mm-hmm. The, what was it, fifties and sixties? Yeah, so so that's it. That's the witch trials. Um, and so... I, d- I don't
1: know. Did 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 you mention as well, Luke? There was a, this idea that like proximity to Salem Town was apparently a good indicator for likelihood of being accused of being a witch. Interesting. So like the 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 villager people were suspicious of the townier people. And obviously people who had extramarital affairs or or children out of wedlock and all that kind of thing. I believe that
0: the people of the town looked down upon the people of the village, uh, is my understanding. So, yeah. uh, There was a bit of resentment. Yes, there was a lot of resentment and a lot of of, uh, bad feeling between the two the two parties, I believe. And uh, in terms of um, just like the be- the bewitchment uh, itself.
2: That word that you're using, like a word. Historians yes.
0: and medical researchers have, have posited this idea of ergot poisoning. Uh, I, I mentioned that Sam's podcast has kind of disparaged that idea. Mm-hmm. Others have proposed mass hysteria, possibly due to, as I said, the repeated attacks on local people by outsiders. Uh, it could have been abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse. Or simply spite or jealousy, trying to condemn people who you were jealous or spiteful of within the community to a a prison sentence or worse. Uh, Ultimately, we'll never know.
1: And you can't underestimate the sort of the legitimate belief in the reality of the devil working in, you know, through people. Yeah. How powerful that is on how you interpret. Things. and i
0: mean that that was the i mean in the puritan uh kind of belief system like the, the, yeah. the devil was everywhere we, like,
1: we the are Christians. the elect and yeah everyone else is an instrument of, yeah. of like and so i'm sure many of the accusers didn't realize they were being disingenuous
0: probably not and a lot of them were, were younger younger women as mm. well and i, I mean young, I, young I,
1: impressionable I,
0: I read something about how this uh, preacher paris would mm. like if anybody kind of level any kind of accusation at him of, you know, favoritism or anything like that. He would he would basically condemn them to say that they they were non saved or something. I, yeah, I forget yeah, exactly yeah. what the term is, they but yeah. They weren't like like, the elect. Yeah. They weren't the elect, they weren't real Christians. Like
2: You're and, not my friend anymore.
0: Exactly. But hearing that from a preacher yeah. in this kind of society would be a big deal. Uh so Yeah, it well, was excommunication yeah. almost. Basically, yeah we'll take a quick break here and we will uh, come back with the
1: uh, more normal times
0: (laughs) more well hopefully more normal times anyway yeah for sure hey listeners you may or may not have noticed that unlike many other podcasts you don't hear ads at the beginning or lumped into the middle of our shows And that's because we rely 100% on you, our listeners, to support us via Patreon. If you're already a patron, which many of you are, thank you so much. Our most recent Patreon post has Joe diving down into the Paris catacombs, which we discussed in a previous spooky special. And you can find that at our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash 80 days podcast. To support the show and get access to other bonus content, Sign up at patreon.com forward slash 80 days podcast or follow the link in the show notes. But for now, back to Salem. All right, Joe, Salem in the wake of the witch trials.
1: You'll be glad to hear that the late 1600s, early 1700s, there's not all that much going on. <laughs> um, so there are a few just tidbits I've picked out that I think are interesting. As we said, Salem Village gets renamed. It was incorporated as Danvers in
0: 1752.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, so what's that? That's you know, 50 years later after the trials.
0: They definitely wanted to rebrand. At that yeah, moment.
1: I'm sure that was a big part. <laughs> Danvers, I believe, was a, a early colonist who they named us after.
2: Mm, Carl Car- Car- Danvers, <laughs> uh, Captain Marvel. <laughs>
1: yep. Um, yep. It is interesting, a lot of the people, if you follow the blue links on Wikipedia, it's like, they are an ancestor of some actor or football player who's who's currently yeah. alive. Because these were the first Americans uh, in in the sense of Americans, not the first people who live in the continent of North America, sure. the first uh-huh. USAians. So the seal of Danvers, which was incorporated say, in 1752... Um, although the seals at seventeen fifty seven, so maybe my notes are wrong. Is curious. It has
2: a lot of words in it.
1: Image of the town meeting with the town meeting written under it. Around the <laughs> edge it says the strongest of all citadels of civil liberty, which is a big
2: big claim. Yeah. And the
1: purest of all democracies, also
2: a big claim. Totally not that place where we killed those women. <laughs> at our yeah. great big meeting of hysteria. Yeah um and it was the ergot the ergot did it
1: it has the king unwilling written at the bottom because apparently the um the, there's a legend that earlier requests for a royal charter were rejected uh with this phrase you just send off your i don't know your application to the king like <laughs> dear king we would like to be a city yeah and you get back a scroll a few months later going the king unwilling and they decided to uh, put that in their seal
0: okay they were like, we're gonna go ahead anyway, but uh thanks for the scroll, I guess.
1: <laughs> exactly. Uh big event of the seventeen hundreds in North America was the bit where it becomes America as a country. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um so that obviously there were tea parties in Boston, which sound delightful. I assume they were polite China c- cups kind of stuff. Mm. Um this isn't that far away from the the, the, the hotbed of action. There was a, a colourful character called uh, Israel Putnam. He was born in Danvers on a 100-acre family farm into a prominent Puritan family, so he was probably fine. Uh, his father had benefited most from his grandfather's wealth, leaving his half-uncle, Thomas Putnam, aggrieved. This may have motivated Thomas to accuse dozens of people, many of them his in-laws, so um Israel's mother's family, uh, as witches back in the oh, day, boy, so um that that's you know just still floating around everyone's uh family history
0: have a problematic neighbor you want to get rid of mm. report them as a witch it's like
1: my sister in law is a witch yeah, and also her brother and her father <laughs> and my brother <laughs> and, yeah. you know, and all the people I have grudges against yes so um he was uh colourful and brave by all accounts. He fought in the French and Indian Wars and there's an incident where he was tied to a tree by a Mohawk captor for ritual burning, so there's a, as close as we get to a burning at the stake, Okay. but was saved from his fate by a French officer who was, you know, allied to the Mohawks, but thought this was a bit bit much. Bit much. When the first shots of the American Revolution were fired in Lexington and Concord, he is alleged to have come straight off the plough on his farm, got on a horse and rode off to war. As an older man, that's that's very, you know, (laughs) exciting of him. Uh, He was noted for his acts of bravery at the Battle of Bunker Hill, which is around Charlestown, right? That you mentioned earlier. Nice big monument there that I've actually visited. So you know, if you like your American Revolutionary history, this guy from Salem Village was in on it. Danvers also has a plaque commemorating Benedict Arnold's invasion of Quebec in 1775. Apparently, it's quite rare for there to be plaques
2: to Benedict Arnold. Arnold.
1: Can't think why. Mark, do you know any more about Benedict Arnold than me?
2: Uh well, no. He 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 switched sides. That's that's the he, he main kind of big betrayed, thing. America he betrayed America. He went America, back to the British. I hadn't even actually yeah. considered him for my my list of terrible Americans, but uh, he's he's, oh, he's sidling his way well, up. Well, I don't
1: know if he was like I mean, he was he was bad at being an American, but was he a terrible person? No, I think did. that's what your list is, right? No terrible like,
2: Americans. No terrible Americans. Oh, like terrible at yeah.
1: being American.
2: Um. Y- yes. Mainly, certainly, certainly the,
1: my, the new edition. Okay, so Joe, Joe, so Joe McCarthy's made you a list of those. <laughs> 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 so uh yeah, Benedict Arnold fans—they are in Danvers. Curious. In February twenty eighth, seventeen seventy five, uh some patriots raised a drawbridge on the North River in Salem. So apparently, they had a drawbridge in the seventeen seventies. That's kind of cool. And prevented the British Colonel Alexander Leslie and his troops from seizing some ammo hidden in Salem, so they did their bit in stopping the Brits get their ammo. And a few months later, in 1775, as the tide was turning, apparently a group of prominent merchants uh, in Salem had to sort of um, felt the need to publish a statement retracting what some interpreted as loyalist leanings and professor dedication to the colonial cause. Mm. So, uh, yeah, there was a bit of um, the elite maybe. Still being English, but deciding that it might not be
0: um, profitable.
2: Howdy, guys! Let's have a hot dog. <laughs> uh,
0: Sorry, American listeners. That that's terrible. a clip. That's a clip we can use. The national anthem, right?
1: Fort Lee was built at Salem Neck, and this is a rare example of a Revolutionary fort that has not been significantly altered since. So it's now a ruin, but it's uh, it's not been built over with a different, more modern fort at any point. Okay. So it's a really good and rare example of that. Uh, it's a, kind of one of these f- kind of star-shaped five-pointed forts. It's a bit like um, cool. how Quebec was built as well. Similar era. Mm-hmm. Big thing that I couldn't find much on, but seems to have been a feature of Salem, is it was uh, one of the main ports that privateers operated out of during the Revolutionary War and later. So privateers were sort of... Uh, Authorized pirates, shall we say? Yeah. Yep. So they they were given a letter of mark to disrupt British shipping during the war. One guy of interest is a uh, Antrim-born, so an Irish man, Hugh Hill, who was a cousin of future president Andrew Jackson. Okay. Uh, because there were only about fourteen people in America at the time, uh, many from Antrim he operated out of Beverly which is actually a little bit further up the coast and became known as the scourge of the british coast for his piracy and false flag operations around ireland and britain i think he captured was it 40 ships or something uh good lord wow. during his time um not bad all in the colonial cause and i mention him because he's going to come up in my discussion of our next danvers um native our second Nathaniel, Nathaniel who uh, who is an important American mathematician, and his book, The American Practical Navigator, is still used in U.S. Commission vessels. I assume an updated version, but I'm not certain. I hope so. But... Uh, he was the son of a cooper, a self-taught in algebra and calculus, as you do between barrels, um, and his ability to self-study was aided by serendipity, or as I might call it, theft, um in that he found himself able to use the uh library of the eminent Irish chemist from Galway, where I am being a chemist, so you know uh, I I have some sympathy for Richard Kerwin, whose okay. entire library was stolen by Hugh Hill, this uh privateer right, from Salem. Okay. Um so he, he captured he intercepted a ship. Carrying the library between Ireland and England, and that was some of his booty.
0: He took off with was a science library. It's yeah. It's, it seems like an <laughs> odd choice for booty. If like, I'm I think he was taking all, whatever. Like,
1: yeah, books Great. are valuable. To be they fair, are. I like, mean, but, yeah, you know, particularly in this time, you couldn't That's just uh, you couldn't just go onto onto Google Books and read the first twenty pages. Sure. Uh,
0: we are we are pirates in our own way, Joe. <laughs> 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 it's mainly
2: the contents. Ah, useless. <laughs>
1: Uh, So this was auctioned at Salem and became the basis of the Salem Athenaeum, a membership-based library, which which Nathaniel used to become a mathematician of great importance. He was also married into the Ingersoll family, and one of his sons was a prominent abolitionist. He turned down chairs in Harvard and in the University of Virginia and in the Military Academy in mathematics because he was successfully being the chairman of an insurance firm, making a lot more money than a Harvard professor. He just did, you know, he didn't want to settle down. Didn't want to be tied down to, I mean, Harvard was really a plucky upstart institute at this point. And he was also a member of the Royal Society and the Royal Irish Academy. So he was uh, internationally recognised for his maths. And the other Nathaniel, which I think, Mark, you're going to talk about his works a bit more. A little bit, yeah. Nathaniel Hawthorne uh, was also born in Salem. He's a famous author. And he he was related to the Ingersoll family as well, who had built the House of Seven Gables a kind of fancy estate uh, in Salem, which he would name a book after. He was the great-great-grandson of John Hawthorne, one of the judges in the witch trials. Uh, and he inserted a W into his name to make it Hawthorne possibly to escape this legacy. And here we are, sharing his secrets with millions. <laughs> and so this House of Seven Gables, that I, I, I think he definitely spent a lot of time in it. I don't think he ever lived in it. Uh, is a quite remarkable structure, um, but maybe not. it wouldn't be remembered if it weren't for the book, I don't think. Uh still stands, as does the house he was born in, which is moved to be beside the House of Seven Gables. So the house was built in the 1700s and then moved later. And that House of Seven Gables was built for the Turner family uh, a century earlier by Samuel Wardwell, who was executed as a witch in 19- in 1693. Yeah. Um, Right. So there is the the Ingersoll's acquired the house in the 1700s and inspired uh, his novel, his kind of spooky, spooky romance novels, I think is kind of his vibe. And the builder of the house, Samuel Wardwell, is a direct ancestor of the actor Scott Foley from the unit Scrums and Scandal. Uh, if that's of interest to
2: anyone you'd recognize him
1: yeah exactly he's he's oh, that
2: okay oh, that all right okay
1: he's he's one of those kind of like uh
2: yeah, i definitely recognize the name, yeah,
1: so that's all I've got under seventy minutes
2: yeah. uh all right, so um moving moving swiftly on, kind of the next big event it kind of tracks with what uh what what's America doing now, uh America is hurtling towards war with Britain again um between 1807 and 1808 you have uh the the embargo so salem as well as, as the rest of the us was caught in the crossword between britain and france who were in the white hot crucible of naval competition britain was massively dominant in this of course but france was kind of as a result of being under pressure operating with uh, a bit less decorum kind of taking ships and pounding them at random pretty much and the merchants and the sailors of salem were the ones who were effectively suffering as a, as a part of this they kind of stumped up for extra security for their ships they actually paid for three gunships to protect their naval interests not not exactly necessarily a huge navy but you know uh, it, it it was their navy basically thomas jefferson proposed and then implemented an embargo on british goods this move had come in reaction to a mix of French rules subjecting any ship with English goods to be subject to seizure, and also the fact that the English had conscripted a boat full of Americans, which did not go down very well, and assumedly kind of, you know, triggered a lot of post-colonial resentments uh, at home as well. So just, just for kind of context, Salem was a major port, kind of in, you know, global in its reach. Ships that left Salem in 1807, before the embargo kicked in, There were 63 went to Europe, 10 went to India slash China, 61 to the Caribbean and South America. And, you know, the rest of the country was impacted too in different ways because exports weren't getting out to market. But the impact was most acute in shipping cities like Salem. Makes sense. So there were three shipyards in Salem, but they produced zero ships in 1808 and only one to two in 1809. Oh, wow. That quote. The farmers discovered that the masts and spars, the oak planks and knees which they had laboriously worked out during the winter months for the shipyards found no market. The ship chandlers who provisioned the vessels no longer wanted the farmers' barrels of salt pork and salt beef, which were the staple food of the crews. The Danvers farmers began to wonder whether or not they should plant their great fields of yellow onions, which ordinarily furnished hundreds of barrels to prevent scurvy on many long voyages. So basically, like the knock-on effects were absolutely crippling economically for Salem, even though this is an American uh, initiative. Uh, By 1809, 1,200 people were at the soup kitchens, and 20% of Salem were basically beggars. In March of 1809, the embargo law was repealed placed with a more targeted piece of legislation banning trade with England and France and their respective dependencies. So ships were soon out to the West Indies, Sumatra, Canton, Portugal and South America.
1: Gotta get that pepper
2: from Sumatra. Yeah, exactly. Otherwise, what's your flag worth? That classic Sumatra to to Massachusetts route. Uh, Uh, (laughs) Oh, Scott. It's what you always think of.
1: Like when I think of, you know, it's it's, it's clam chowder and Sumatran pepper. That's just, that's just. For sure.
2: Uh, so thirty days after the repeal of this this blockade, uh, the self-imposed blockade, uh, fifty-nine ships left, and another thirty days later there was another thirty-nine. So it was it was just you know kind of back back to business as quickly as possible. Of course, all of these tensions led to the War of eighteen twelve between the U.S. and Great Britain, essentially due to long-running and non-addressed tensions of exactly the sort we just talked about. But not everyone was aware that war had been declared. Uh, For example, there had been those who embarked on long sea voyages were unaware, including the amicably titled The Friendship, which I'm pretty sure is what Mr. (laughs) Burns calls his little paper (laughs) ship before his finger falls off (laughs) due to leprosy. That is terrible. The Friendship coming your way. The Friendship was a three-masted, 342-tonne vessel that was built in 1796, built in Salem uh, under uh, the shipbuilder Enos Briggs. Still
1: still kicking it with the good names. Yeah, indeed.
2: Mm. So so the Friendship had travelled all over the world since it was built, including to Venezuela, Italy, and Indonesia. But when it left Russia in 1812, they hadn't heard about the declaration, set sail for Salem without too much concern, and were captured in the Atlantic While the crew were able to return to Salem, the boat was taken to London and sold at auction. Um, Mm. And the reason I bring it up mainly is because there's a replica of the ship now permanently docked in Salem Harbour as sort of a historical artefact.
0: The Friendship. Great.
2: This is from the the Streets of Salem history blog. Um, Salem privateering vessels uh, included the Polly, the Snowbird, the Buckskin, the Montgomery, the John, the Revenge, the Dolphin and the justly famous fame
1: i'm gonna live forever
2: (laughs) from the salem gazette the, the privateer dolphin after a successful cruise of 20 days returned to salem on the 23rd of july the dolphin has taken six prizes without receiving the smallest injury. She was reportedly chased by the English at one time for 24 hours, but finally escaped. She has treated her prisoners with the greatest kindness. Except for, like, taking them off their ships and well, terrorizing Well, them. no, to the point. Uh, in rowing away from men of war, she found great aid from their voluntary assistance. The prisoners said they had much rather go to America than return aboard a British man of war. Uh, <laughs> so they were pretty willing, apparently. Um <laughs> Yeah. In April 1814, with the war dragging on, the USS Constitution was being pursued by two British vessels, frigates Tenedos and Junon. After being chased out of Boston Harbour, the Constitution unsuccessfully sought refuge in Marblehead Harbour and then moved on to Salem Harbour, where they waited out the Tenedos and Junon for about a week. The two British frigates eventually abandoned the pursuit and the Constitution was able to return safely to Boston. This was kind of one of the main you know, military acts that skirted near uh, Salem Town. There wasn't a huge amount otherwise, except for terrible American, uh, Timothy Pickering. He was a Salem native. Uh, He was also at various points, postmaster general, secretary of war, secretary of state, an adjutant general a senator and several other things besides it's a career it's 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 a lot so i am mentioning this guy here in the context of him not really reading the room during what would have been assumedly a very contentious period he was an anglophile very clearly from what he's about to do he had opposed siding with france to fight britain previously and during the war of 1812 he ran into trouble by violating the logan act which essentially means that uh you know just a person like him can't be negotiating with other countries on the US's behalf, which is what he was trying to do. So right. things he was doing, included, surely, like you can just be on holidays and be like, yep. "Listen, could we have the Suez Canal?" It's, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it, I mean, it it, it, ha- it has been done, but it's it's a bit of a no no for most most countries. So he included suggesting to the Brits that they should keep pressure on the Americans so that the Americans would eventually lose public support. And he tried to set up a pro-British party in New England right. during the war with the British. It's a little traitory. Mm. He's it's 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 kind of pushing it. Um, and I kind of mentioned about my my list growing by one uh, in, in T- Timothy Pickering. Um, I'm adding him to my, my one-person list of Reed Smoot from our Utah episode, who maybe arguably caused World War II with his kind of recklessly stupid economic policies, mm. uh, which I, I think kind of qualifies in all respects. So he's, you know, he's, was he the teapot dome guy? I think it was the teapot dome guy le- that led to him. I think that was right. his, his route into power. But yeah, it was definitely God. part of that, that episode. I have to listen back to that one. Oh, there's going to be a, a, another oblique Utah reference later. Um, oh, okay, nice so uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne um you, you you mentioned him earlier he wrote the novel Fanshawe in 1828 mm. um the novel was set in Salem and was seen as a pretty big deal in terms of kind of establishing US literature as a as a thing oh, it's... is it good it's... Did, it, did it ever catch on uh US literature <laughs> not not he, well <laughs> But I mean, so uh, this this book got three point zero nine stars out of five on Goodreads. But he also grew to hate it so much that he tried to buy up all the copies at a time when I guess that was possible (laughs) and uh, destroy them. Right. Uh, But he would go on to write the much more famous and much better received The Scarlet Letter in eighteen fifty, which is also very bleak and depressing and potentially accurate about kind of particularly given what just is
1: that that the one about people making assumptions of a woman who's kind of assumed to be. Promiscuous, but actually, not yeah. the case at all, and, and
2: they they make her wear a scarlet letter. You know, I can't remember what the letter is, but it it stands for something awful. Okay, yeah, and and then I think we find out that you know it was all a lie, and she was just being shamed for the she sake was, of it, and the yeah, world no, is awful. She just,
1: wasn't, she just wasn't willing to give them the satisfaction of
2: a, a lo- along those of lines, saying
1: that they were wrong. Yeah, no, I, I think there was a movie adaptation. Easy A was what I was thinking of as an adaptation. Oh. It's kind of a, is a kind oh, okay. of a
2: modern high school take.
1: Mm. Which people might have seen.
2: Okay. Uh, apparently, the people of Salem didn't like the the vibe given off by this, even though from what we've read, it was pretty flippin' accurate. So, I don't know. They they, they don't be, be uh, cast as buckle hatted busybodies, uh, but uh, you know, <laughs> they were. So. I mean, they ju- they just
1: done a whole uh, a whole witch trial.
0: I don't like you characterizing me as a thing that I am. Yeah. <laughs> don't appreciate it. Um... All right. Uh, let's take one last quick break, and then we'll come back with everything up to modern day. Cool. so in 1847 the railroad came to danvers a street railway was installed in 1884 originally consisting of 69 horse-drawn trolleys and that system was later converted to electricity danvers which had originally been an agricultural town its farmers developed two unique breeds of vegetables in the 1800s the danvers onion and the danvers half long carrot
1: i did encounter that yes hot dog yeah
0: the Danvers yellow globe onion uh, apparently is particularly easy to grow and harvest and was so successful and popular with farmers that Danvers eventually earned the nickname Onion Town.
1: So that's what we're calling the
2: episode, right? Yeah.
0: It's a town with multiple layers to its history. Oh, uh, geez. Geez. Oh. <laughs> You're
2: yeah. going to make me cry. Ah, uh, yeah. Oh. I'm, I'm, I'm
0: out. The onion seed from this <laughs> onion was sent to Sapporo, Japan sometime between 1871 and 1878, and eventually was crossbred to produce the Sapporo-ki onion, which is grown in Sapporo today. I've been to Sapporo. Uh, I, I'm to... not familiar with it, but uh, it sounds like it's significant. At least somebody wrote something about it on the internet. So <laughs> that's right. a, that's, if that's a mark of significance, uh, I don't know what is. Uh, the Danvers half-long carrot is also a very hardy crop. That will grow in much shallower soil than most carrots.
1: And what 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 what? Why is it half long? That seems like it's...
0: I I believe it's just shorter than a normal carrot. I don't know if that's had like anything to do stubby. with why it will grow in shallower soil. Shorter
1: I, shorter I, than a long carrot, but longer than a short carrot.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I don't know, but I mean, it's an interesting way to say short, half long. I guess. <laughs> so,
1: I, I let's see. I don't think it means short. I think you call it a short carrot if it's short. I think it's it's.
0: I believe Half from the reading that it was it was it's, it's it is a bit shorter than regular carrots, okay. but uh, but it's so
2: thick. I have no
0: what? idea. Around 1860, <laughs> the population of Danvers is recorded to be around 5,000 people. A couple of years later, the Lander Barracks, an army barracks for uh, housing soldiers during the American Civil War, was constructed in the town. And by 1900, the town's population had grown to 8,500. In the mid-1950s, a missile site was constructed in the town with the aim of protecting Boston from potential Soviet bombers, and this site would eventually uh, house nuclear warheads, uh, but was decommissioned in 1974. No. Okay. Uh, Shortly after that, the population reaches around 21,000. It makes
1: it sound like those are causally connected.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I have no idea. We mentioned The Crucible earlier. That's published in 1953. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was first performed in the Martin Beck Theatre on Broadway on January 22nd, 1953, starring E.G. Marshall, Beatrice Strait and Madeline Sherwood. Arthur Miller felt that the production was too stylized and too cold, but the production won the 1953 Tony Award for Best Play, and it's regarded as a central work in the canon of American drama. There's also the 1996 uh, film adaption with a screenplay written by Arthur Miller himself. The cast included Paul Schofield, Daniel Day-Lewis, and Winona Ryder, and earned uh, Arthur Miller an Academy Award nomination for Best Screenplay based on previously produced or published material. Uh, the year that the play debuted, Miller wrote about it that he said the, the Crucible is taken from history. No character is in the play who did not take a similar role in Salem in 1692. But that's been challenged on a number of fronts. Uh, and there, there are a number of mistakes to do, do with ages of characters and people being aged hmm. up and aged down. And, you know, their roles being maybe slightly magnified or whatever. But it does seem to be... I mean it's a fictionalization yes. he he said similar yeah, but it's certainly similar it seems to be largely follow history
1: yeah so it's not a documentary and it has an agenda yes but all good fiction is about when it's written exactly you use the the materials and the shapes from history to kind of go hmm does that make you think about anything we're doing
0: now yeah yeah in 1992 the witchcraft victims memorial is dedicated on stone street on the 300th anniversary of the trials and the memorial is a four-foot by eight-foot granite altar with a granite Bible resting on top. Okay. Uh, behind the altar is a granite slab listing the names of the accused who died during the witch trials. The way you've
1: described it makes it sound quite quite witchy. Yeah. Is it a, Is it like uh They were witches, and this is their. <laughs> Wiccan <laughs> memorial kind of memorial? I don't know. I, personally,
0: I would question the the, the, the Bible uh, yeah. given that, you know, Puritanism is largely the cause of uh, the death of these people. Today. But anyway, uh-huh.
2: unless the Bible is, is holding a knife and marching them up the gallows, <laughs> waving its fist at them threateningly. I'm not sure it's accurate. I'm not sure.
0: Yeah. It, yeah. Uh, didn't check it out on Google Images, but I don't think so. Salem Town or Salem City, I think, uh, however, has a bit more of its uh, history, like kind of from what I can tell, anyway, it seems to kind of uh, play up the the witch aspect uh, a bit more. Oh yes, uh, it has a witch museum, which appears to be one of the main attractions in the town. Admission is sixteen dollars fifty for adults, which I thought was pretty steep. It's a bit steep. Yeah, yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't know how much museums typically cost in the US, but I, from when I was there, I don't remember them costing sixteen. No, this
2: million. this is the only one. They they don't really go for that. I guess. Yeah, I think I
1: think we're used to museums being free over this part of the world,
2: or at least, you know. 10 or euros maybe. Or, or,
1: or yeah modest yeah
2: but i think like it's it's probably a private for profit i would imagine oh yeah no so, it's probably not yeah. run by the government no
0: it's got a three out of five on TripAdvisor, and one reviewer read uh, mentioned animatronics which is an immediate turnoff oh, no. for me in a museum <laughs> there's also a nearby memorial which is next to a local graveyard with some figures from the time uh including one of the court judges that's got a 4.6 out of 5 on google but uh, a guy called William M reviewed it and said, what a disgrace. The entire town is more about tourists and Harry Potter than the horrible tragedy that occurred. This tiny walkway is all you'll find to recognize the poor victims. The site where they were hanged and their bodies dumped is now a neighborhood and a park with absolutely no historical markers. We don't respect nor fear our history. So we may be doomed to repeat it. I don't know if he's predicting uh, witch trials in in 2022, but um... I mean, Maybe. You
1: know, there's a witch hunt on often yeah. in America. You know.
0: <laughs> okay. Yeah, and I, I just took a... I don't know if you guys can see it in the, in the uh, notes here, but I just took a screenshot, which I'll upload to the to the show notes of Google Maps. And it's got all kinds of stuff all over Salem, like Hocus Pocus tours, the Salem Witch Trials Memorial, which I mentioned. Uh, there is the is it, Witch Dungeon Museum, Gallows Hill Museum... Uh, the witch house at salem
2: it, it'd be like if you went to to roswell yeah i feel like yeah, yeah. you know just transpose all these things for alien to There's witch a, and, a, a store know.
0: here like home and home and heating called house witch which is just it's <laughs> terrible what
1: there was briefly a, a minor league baseball team called the salem witches in the 20s ah yes
0: mm-hmm. yes of course there was and then just to round off modern day, there's a most prominent event in the 21st century, I think was the 2006 Danvers uh, chemical plant fire. Yeah, I, I,
1: I've been on that. So Come for
2: the witches, stay for the chemical plant fire.
1: Yeah. It, so apparently it was a 2am explosion, heard about 80 kilometers away, and it occurred at the solvent and ink manufacturer. Yeah. Uh, and there'd been some kind of overnight reaction, heating.
0: Chemicals being mixed or something, yeah.
1: And the solvents went boom. Like a lot of solvents are quite flammable, so mm. if you want to, if you don't attend them, this can happen. Yeah. Ninety homes were damaged; windows are blown out or knocked off their foundations. The outgoing governor Mitt Romney, now senator for Utah, he was ma- governor of Massachusetts in two thousand six. He's had a bit of a geographic uh, relocation. He said the explosion, and I, I think he meant this in in the way that doesn't sound insensitive. But I am going to quote oh, him. God. He said the explosion was a Thanksgiving miracle in that. It was the equivalent of a two thousand pound bomb going off in a residential neighbourhood, and nobody was killed. Yeah. So, not that it was a miracle that there was a chemical plant explosion. Uh-huh. I assume that would be yeah uh, an insane thing to say. Yeah. But rather, it was a miracle that, um, despite how massive it was, nobody was hurt. Old,
2: old, old Mitt had a had a had an old Turner phrase. Oh. I remember him referring to having binders full of women. He did. At oh, one yes. Point. And uh, somebody <laughs> being asked what his favourite meat was, what his favourite food was, and saying hot dog. Okay. <laughs> it's, uh,
1: that's coming all the yeah. way back to your uh, american impression yeah
2: mm, indeed yeah. howdy
1: y'all you like a hot dog
2: yeah. i like a hot dog
1: um so in in an area that included over 300 residents just 10 people reported minor injuries so that, that's that's good
0: yeah. i lifted a clip from youtube here for on a news report um on cool. this, so we can we can maybe drop that in here
2: one of the first homes the blast wave hit belonged to David Marcoux at number three Bates Street, adjacent to the plant site. He was sound asleep when the blast tore out his bedroom balcony sliding glass doors, sending shards of glass flying across the room, some of it hitting him on the back of the head.
0: I just remember being on my feet, looking around, and, and just being like, wow, it's really windy in this room, and then all I could see was fire in front of me, and, um, you know, so hot and intense that I could feel it right on my face. Okay, so to round off anything on uh, sports, guys? Uh,
2: a, few, a few little bits. Uh, they have a minor league baseball team called the Salem Red Sox, slightly unimaginatively. They were founded in 1955. They have at least two inductees into the National Baseball Hall of Fame uh, who have played for Salem, including two guys no one's ever heard of. Orlando Capeda, who played 26 games for the Rebels in the 50s and Larry Walker, who played two rehabilitation games uh, for when they were called the avalanche in 1996 a
1: rehabilitation game.
2: I think he, he was, his body was all banged up and he was trying to get back to speed. That's literally, it was, it was, he, it, was, it, was it was a baseball themed hospital as far as he was concerned. Great. Um, <laughs> So their their previous names, uh, I mentioned the Avalanche, there's also the Buccaneers, the Redbirds, the Pirates, and the Rebels, and their mascots are Muggsy and Misty, the St. Bernard Dog. Sure. Then there's uh, Salem State College, which seems to be like the main university in the area. They have various teams for hockey and basketball and many other things, but uh, all the teams are called the Vikings. So, you know. Wow. Go Vikings. No witches. Yeah, go Vikings. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Uh,
1: I understand Megan Duggan from Danvers captained the U.S. ice hockey team to gold in 2018 Winter Olympics. I mean, so
2: fair, fair enough. Think. Good for
1: her. Uh, I've never heard of her, but I, I also does follow Olympic ice hockey. So there was also, I think, two NFL players who are brothers, the Bavaro brothers.
0: I don't know if they matter. <laughs> they probably do to some of our listeners. But, uh, to to to
1: mommy and daddy. Pavaro, I'm sure.
0: The
2: apple of their parents' eye.
1: One is a longer Wikipedia page than the other. Another notable person who I think is worth mentioning is a Brad Delp, uh, native of Danvers, who is the lead singer of Boston. All right. Ah. Another band who sing More Than a Feeling. Uh,
0: sure. Yes, yes.
1: And possibly other things. And three other songs. Yeah. There may be. They,
0: they, they do sing other songs. What,
1: what, what, what would those be, yeah. Luke, uh, off the top of your head? I
0: have no idea. I'm I'm aware that they have produced other music. That's all. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that's the extent of my knowledge.
1: Peace and mo- peace of mind, smoking, and Four plays slash long time.
0: Cool. Four plays. are all uh, are all songs. Who could forget four four piece slash long time? That's not what I said. But, uh,
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: but more than a feeling is a good tune. So. There's also a guy called Matt Farley who seems to produce like thousands and thousands of songs in hundreds of different bands. He he was on an episode of Reply All, and he's from Salem. He's from Salem. Yeah. Okay,
2: cool. Two so, two other just very small things to mention. Their current population is about forty three thousand people. Um, median household income is sixty six thousand dollars. I think they they generally compare pretty favorably to kind of American. Uh, averages, their uh, unemployment rate is actually a little bit higher than than the average, unfortunately. But yeah, overall, it's kind of like, it's not super, super swish town uh, these days. It's kind of, it's kind of a pretty good representative of uh, of, of kind of Middlesville, USA. There's not much uh, going on. Their, their biggest employer, for example, is the hospital.
1: Demographically, very uh, not representative of America more generally. Um, is it? Is it a
2: bit... Is it a bit pasty looking?
1: I mean, it, it's.
2: <laughs> it, yeah, it's
1: uh, you know, it's it was colonized by Europeans and stayed that way. Okay, you leave it at that.
2: We got some trivia also from from Crashamir. Oh
1: yes, our friend, our friend Crashamir sends us uh, trivia, trivia
2: ninja. Yeah, <laughs> the the apparently one of the only judges at the witch trials who did not repent of his actions was John Hawthorne, great great grandfather of Nathaniel Hawthorne. Uh, who inserted the W to his name precisely because his ancestor was not a very nice person. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's cool. that's interesting. Uh, and the first long-distance phone call was made from Salem. Uh, Alexander Graham Bell was there, while well, his assistant was in Boston.
1: Cool. And that's why they thought the phone was witchcraft. Makes sense.
2: There's also uh, this, this bit from um, the TV show Bewitched, which I actually watched a heck of a lot of as a kid. It was replayed on, on Irish television a lot. And they had a statue in salem to commemorate this and the statue is of the main character which is samantha but the actress elizabeth montgomery according to wikipedia was actually born in los angeles and died in los angeles so i don't know whether the character was maybe from there uh, maybe that's why they had a statue i i kind of
0: she's a witch is that not good enough
2: she's she's a witch i think that's the yeah maybe that's
0: do they have sabrina there somewhere as well All right, well, that's the end of our Salem episode. Um, yeah. Hope you enjoyed it. And uh, now you know everything there is to know about Salem. Uh, and probably as much maybe as maybe you're not. ever going
1: to learn about one American small city um, yep. from us. Yep.
0: All right, uh, so you can find more episodes of the podcast wherever you are listening to this podcast right now uh we would appreciate if you would rate us uh whether you're on a podcast app or on apple podcasts or spotify you can leave a rating for the podcast and let people know how great it is if you weren't a fan then maybe don't leave a rating and that will be fine <laughs> yeah I keep your uh, keep your pins to yourself Yep. Yeah. <laughs> also why are
1: you still why are you still listening it's a, it's a long yeah. time to commit to something you you're hate. probably
0: not here anymore yeah so we are going to
2: pick up in the last 30 seconds. Uh, if you want to get
0: in contact with us or uh, connect with us on social media, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter under 80 Days Podcast. You can also email us directly at 80 dayspodcastgmailcom at gmail.com. We are also powered by our patrons, and you can learn more about that at the link in the show notes or at patreon.com forward slash 80dayspodcast.
1: Guys, I, I have a I have a sense or a, an inclination or... um Are you about to accuse us of being witches? Sort of a, an inkling. That the, no, that the, the, this this episode went pretty well, you know. Just a sense or a feeling. Is it more than a feeling? No, it's more than a feeling. It's more than a feeling.
0: Is it spectral evidence? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll leave it there. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in the next one. Bye bye. Bye bye.
1: Um, howdy.
0: <laughs> <laughs> hot dog. Hot dog. <laughs>